0: Kiss me, man. What? Kiss me. When I'm being fucked, I like to get kissed hey, Come a lot, on, come yeah. on, come on. You're a city cock, right? Robbing the banks of federal offence, they got me on kidnapping, armed robbery, they're gonna bury me, man.
1: There are hundreds of screenwriting gurus the world over, convincing aspiring writers that if they enrol in their course, they will learn of the secrets that go into writing a script that sells. Each guru propagates her or his own unique angle on not only what makes a great screenplay, but how to make the screenplay great. Without question, time and money spent in the company of Pilar Alessandra, Carl Iglesias, and Christopher Vogler is time and money very well spent. But ultimately, none of them can avoid the one undermining truth. While their peers offer up diagrams displaying the quest, the story spine, and the storyality syntagm, the fact is there is no one unifying secret no universal formula no all-encompassing equation if there were every film would be the same and every film would be a hit on the contrary every story like every piece of music needs to be written in its own way and quite often a truly great screenplay violates at least one of the principles the gurus hold sacred take for instance establishing a story's premise writing instructors advise their students that the protagonist's life needs to be established before the inciting incident can be activated. Why? Because character is behaviour and behaviour is routine. Only after the protagonist's routine has been established can the inciting incident occur and throw the protagonist off kilter. Here is highly regarded screenwriting analyst Michael Hogue speaking to the YouTube channel Film Courage.
2: My underlying philosophy of all storytelling is that your primary goal as a storyteller must be to elicit emotion. Screenwriters are inundated with the idea that you got to grab the reader right away and you got to get things going and all your movies move fast and so on. All of that is true but it doesn't mean you rush the story. Jumping from the setup not showing the everyday life of the character before they get into the story moving forward. We first have to get acquainted and identify or empathize with this character. First we have to just connect with them emotionally. So your primary goal has to be to create an emotional connection to that character, You show her living her everyday life then there's a turning point, the opportunity. Something new happens is what I call a new situation. Your hero has now been presented with some event that takes them somewhere new. It might be geographically new or just some new circumstance where they have to figure out what's going on.
1: Hoag's book, Writing Screenplays That Sell, has never been out of print since it was first published in 1998. Yet, if we were studio executives, disciples of Hoag's edict, Frank Pearson's Oscar-winning screenplay, Dog Day Afternoon, would probably be rejected within the first ten pages. Three men walk into a bank and proceed to rob it. The opening of Pearson's script, which you can read online, is not designed to establish the men's everyday lives or reveal their motivations to rob the bank. Consequently, their actions have no context. Yet, while we don't connect with the men, we do observe them. Observing them provokes our curiosity, and that curiosity prompts questions. A reader asking questions is like we the audience leaning forward in our seats. Leaning forward in our seats displays that we are emotionally invested in the characters, which means that Pearson had managed to elicit our emotional investment without establishing who these characters are and why they are robbing the bank. Pearson opted for this strategy because he had already been down a different route years before, when he was struggling in the early drafts of the screenplay that would eventually earn him an Oscar nomination. Cool Hand Luke.
0: What we've got here is failure to communicate.
1: Here is Pearson speaking with the Writers Guild Foundation in 2001 about his difficulties in finding a starting point for Cool Hand Luke. The rest of the two-hour interview is available on YouTube.
2: If anybody still remembers seeing the picture and so on, it begins now with him drunk cutting off the heads of of parking meters, I had to know, and I felt the audience needed to know, what his day had been like to lead him to do this dumb, desperate act and so on. So I had him getting up in the morning, fighting with his wife, his strange; children won't talk to him, he goes and his boss has fired him, I don't know, uh, he has the most terrible day and it winds up this way. So, you know, that was the first 40 pages of the screenplay and in the end we just threw them all out, we didn't need them.
1: Dog Day Afternoon is based on true-life events that occurred in New York on August 22, 1972. John Vacevic, Sal Naturale and Robert Westenberg undertook to rob a branch of Chase Manhattan Bank in Gravesend, Brooklyn. Pearson's script was adapted from a six-page article, The Boys in the Bank, written by P.F. Kluger and Thomas Moore for Life magazine, one month after the failed heist. Intrigued, Pearson then went off and did his own research interviewing as many of the participants as possible. The surviving robbers, their families, the bank staff, the police, the FBI, eyewitnesses in the street and the media that had covered the increasingly bizarre events. In the course of his own investigation, Pearson discovered that the robbery at the Chase Manhattan Bank only came after the trio had failed to rob a bank in Manhattan's Lower East Side. As the gang were getting out of their car, one of them dropped his shotgun, it went off and the noise drew a crowd of onlookers, which prompted the trio to flee. Targeting another bank, this time in Queens Howard Beach, they were again thwarted when, just as they were about to pull their guns, a female customer recognised Natarali. She turned out to be his mother's best friend, so they were left with no choice but to retreat. Then they had another mishap when, during a dry run for their getaway, they crashed their car. It's the stuff of comedy and surely in the hands of another writer that's how it easily could have been played. But Pearson knew the material went deeper than superficial laughter. He knew he was dealing with something tragic.
0: To my darling wife, Leon, whom I love more than any man has loved another man in all eternity.
1: Vojtovich was robbing the bank so he could pay for his husband's gender reassignment operation. And Pearson delayed this revelation until about an hour into the film. Why? Pearson correctly sensed that if he had opened the script with that detail, he was running the risk of the reader tossing it into the bin. Remember, this was 1972. The Stonewall riots had happened barely three years earlier and same-sex sexual activity between consenting adults would not be decriminalised in New York until 1980. Pearson knew that the longer he delayed revealing Sonny's homosexuality, the more he could get audiences to warm to him, feel sympathy for him, and when the revelation occurred, they would not laugh at or scorn him or his husband. Which makes Dark Day Afternoon not just a great heist picture, but a landmark in queer cinema.
0: After the wedding... I ran off for 10 days to Atlantic City. Sonny was frantic. He knew I'd been drinking. He didn't know where I was, who I was with. Well, I I couldn't explain the things I did. So I went to a psychiatrist who told me that I was a woman trapped in a man's body.
1: Consider the casting. Al Pacino, an Italian-American actor, three times Oscar-nominated for his roles in The Godfather, The Godfather Part II, and Serpico. Each of those performances firmly rooted in heterosexual identity. Initially, Michael Corleone held himself apart from his criminal family. He served his country in World War II, and upon his return, found himself a girlfriend who was neither Italian-American nor Catholic. Then, gradually, Michael embraced his family's criminality, and by the end of the first film, he was the husband and father and the leader of that crime family. By the end of the second film, he had become the most powerful gangster in America. By contrast, Frank Serpico was Michael Corleone in reverse. As an undercover narcotics officer, Serpico unearthed corruption within the police department. He took on that corruption, was cast out for his attempts and was almost killed in his continued efforts to enforce the law. Finally, Bloodied but unbowed, he resigned from law enforcement and left America, choosing to live in exile in Switzerland. Both Corleone and Serpico are rugged individuals whose determination to take on forces outside of themselves identify them as heterosexual. In other words, Pacino's performance was feeding into the then relatively new idea that gender itself is a performance. Masculinity exists within quotation marks and for an actor to play a masculine character, only doubles down on the notion of performance. Likewise, homosexuality was a performance, a man behaving in a way that signaled to society his sexual orientation. Dress code, gestures, language, tone of voice. In Dog Day Afternoon, Pacino was once again portraying a virile, proactive male, who was again determined to take on forces outside of himself. Only this time, he was gay. But there was absolutely nothing in Petunia's performance that fed into, or exploited, the stereotypical portrayal of gay men at the time. So instead of depicting Sonny as an outsider because of his sexuality, Dog Day Afternoon portrays him as a man rebelling against society's inequalities. Get over there,
0: will ya? He wants to kill me so bad he can taste it! Okay, I was gonna kill you! Erica! Everybody. Erica! Will ya? Erica! <laughs>
1: Sonny's husband, Leon, portrayed in an Oscar-nominated performance by Chris Sarandon, is a trans woman currently living as a man unable to afford gender reassignment surgery. And that, to me, is the very pulse of the picture. That is what drives Sonny's very action. He does things for other people whether they ask him to do it or not. And it is that sense of sacrifice, that display of altruism, that endears Sonny all the more to the audience. For me, Sonny is a deeply wounded personality, and it is that wound, that inner suffering, that drives him to do what he does. And no matter how noble or altruistic his intentions may be, the law, society's sense of justice, gets in the way. Undoubtedly, Pearson's script was challenging. So challenging that producers Martin Bregman and Martin Elfand felt there were precious few directors who could handle the material. Depending on which way you looked at it, the story could easily have been filmed strictly as a crime drama. Four years earlier, William Friedkin had burst onto the scene with his crime drama, The French Connection. And the year before that, he had directed another breakthrough film in queer cinema, The Boys in the Band. But by the time Dog Day Afternoon came up, Friedkin was embarking on Sorcerer, what turned out to be a misguided remake of Jean-Pierre Melville's classic, Wages of Fear. John Schlesinger might have been a good choice. One of Hollywood's very few openly gay directors, a few years earlier, Schlesinger had won an Oscar for the gay-themed Midnight Cowboy and had followed that up with Sunday Bloody Sunday, a movie that went even further in addressing sexuality. But ultimately, the producer settled for a director who, it turns out, was most probably the only director who could have handled material so well. Sidney Lumet, there were several reasons why Lumet was right. He had already made several dramas set in New York. A View from the Bridge, The Pawnbroker*, Broker and Child's Play. He had also directed several crime dramas. The Anderson Tapes, The Offense and Serpico. And most specifically, he had directed several films where the time frame was particularly constricted. Twelve Angry Men, A Long Day's Journey Into Night and Failsafe. General
2: Bogan from Omaha, sir. Put him on. Group 6 is now about 200 miles past failsafe, Mr. President. We still can't make contact. You know what went wrong? No, sir, we do not. Why can't you raise them by radio? We don't know for sure, sir. We've tried all frequencies. We just can't make contact. Why? I don't
1: know. We had a flash
2: on the board just before it happened and the fault indicator blew out at the same time.
1: But buried amongst all those titles was the Anderson tapes, which had also been written by Frank Pearson. Pearson's script was so good, you might believe it would be hard to mess it up. Not according to Celine Amet, talking here with Charlie Rose back in 1995.
0: Funnily enough, in my view, great scripts can get screwed up more easily because the demand that they make is so much greater. I don't have to tell you, you ha, is there anything more boring than a bad hamlet?
1: One final piece. John Cazale played Sonny's accomplice, Sal Natteralli. In real life, Natarali was a young man still in his teens, and the intention was to cast accordingly. But it was on Petunia's insistence that Cazal, already in his late thirties, be invited to read for the part. Initially, Lumet objected, but he relented and lived to delight in his decision.
0: you got to understand something. If we leave the country, there's no coming back here. You know what I mean? There's no coming back, so that if there's anybody now that you want to talk to You want to say goodbye to? Do it now. Is there any special country you want to go to? Wyoming. No Wyoming. This not a country. That's all right. I'm gonna take care of it.
1: That line was not in Pearson's script. Cazal improvised it live on set in front of the camera. And in that one utterance, he crystallised the nature of Naturale's life. Instead of playing a bank robber, Casale depicted Naturale as a tragically naive man. John Casale appeared in just five films. Two of them, The Conversation and Dog Day Afternoon, received Oscar nominations for Best Picture. While the other three, The Godfather, The Godfather Part II and The Deer Hunter, earned the statuette. In addition to that, Those films earned 14 acting nominations and three further wins. Yet sadly, Cazal was always overlooked. It was during the production of The Deer Hunter that Cazal married his co-star Meryl Streep and it was during the early stages of pre-production that Cazal was diagnosed with cancer. Streep nursed him through his illness and he passed away on March 13, 1978, just months after filming had been completed. Here is Al Pacino speaking of his great friend.
0: John was the actor who who became who he was playing. And I've done a lot of work with John, so I know. I did a lot of theater with John, and I watched him become things, you know. And he did it in his in his. He was a gradation, and he became whoever it was he was playing. And uh, I watched him do whatever every role I. It was a lesson in itself. I think I learned more about acting from John than anybody.